Well, good morning, Crossroads. How's everybody doing this morning? Great to see you. I like the enthusiasm. It's a great way to start out today. Hey, listen, before we get into the sermon this morning, I got a quick announcement that I want to make. This is a, an Ontario-specific announcement for us and us alone. We are going to have um, a special potluck get-together on February 4th after the 10 o'clock service. We're going to call it Super Sunday, okay? It's a little play on words. We're going to have the Super Bowl the following Sunday. So this is the week in between the playoffs and the Super Bowl where there's nothing going on on Sundays. So I thought what we would do is have a gathering and have all of you men and women that have like a favorite soup recipe bring it in. We're going to have a little competition, okay? I'm going to find some, I'm going to find some guys or some ladies that can be judges. We'll give away some prizes, have a good time. The, you guys bring the soups and the desserts. The church will provide breadsticks and salad and drinks. Should be a really fun time. We'll hang out for a couple hours in the gymnasium. Just have a great time of fellowship. Every time we have one of these little get-togethers, I hear from people like three weeks later, when are we doing the next one? We want more and more of this. And so we want to create some fellowship opportunities for you. And so that'll be on February 4th. Make sure you mark your calendars for that Super Sunday and get out your favorite recipe. We're going to need a lot of soup. Even if you don't think it's that good to win a competition, bring it anyways because people will uh, eat it up. So we're looking forward to that, all right? I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We are going to work through a text this morning, the last part of Genesis chapter 2, early part of Genesis chapter 3. Now, as you saw in the bumper video, as you remember Pastor Dave talking last week uh, when he introduced this sermon series, we're all in pursuit of something. We're all chasing after something because we're wired to pursue. We're wired to be pursued. We're wired to know and to be known. We're wired to love and to be loved. This is just the way that God created us. And sometimes, sometimes we chase after something with such white-hot intensity that the thing that we loved and pursued, we actually begin to hate. You ever had a love-hate relationship with something or maybe someone? As you're thinking about that, I know for some of you, you don't have to think very far. You know the thing that I love and hate both at the same time. Uh, Think about that device that is in your pocket, that device that is in your purse. This thing that we call a cell phone, I think it's probably safe to say that many of us, or almost all of us, probably have some sort of love-hate relationship with this phone. Now, if you're over like 30, 35 years old, you probably remember a time before cell phones. You remember what life was like before we were tethered to this thing in our pockets and purses. And you know as a result of this invention, this technology, how drastically it has changed our world and how we interact with it. The cell phone is something that we, most of us have a love-hate relationship with. You know, I think it's one of those, we love it because of the conveniences that it offers, right? We love that we have information at our fingertip. We love that we can, be sc- we can be scrolling on our phone and just like turn our minds off. We love that we can ask a question and immediately get an answer. We love that we can send emails and receive texts and all of these things that we do. But we also hate the fact that we are so deeply uh, connected to it that we can't handle life without it. You know, because there are some of us in here that suffer from, like, a, a, a fear. It's called nomophobia. Has anybody ever heard that word, nomophobia? It's a fear of being without your cell phone. Let's be honest. Do we have any nomophobes in here this morning? 
Okay, you're all lying. There's a lot of you that are lying because I promise some of you, if you walked out the door this morning without your cell phone and three minutes later realized you didn't have it, you would turn around and go home and get it. But we all struggle with this. Like we have a love-hate relationship with this and we're tethered to this technological device of convenience that we both love and we both hate. You know, we have an epidemic in our society of, of accessibility. Check this out. I looked up some statistics this week. 40%, 47% of us admit to being addicted to our cell phones. We pick up our phones on average 144 times a day. You want to hear the thing that's really discouraging? The average American spends three hours and 15 minutes on their cell phone every day. And that equates to 49 days every year. Can you imagine taking a month and a half of your life and doing nothing but this? 49 days. That is, that is for some of us how addicted we are and how accessible we are. But ironically, for most of us, the phone, is, the phone app is actually one of the least used apps on this thing that we call a phone. So, okay, I'm not really um, a guy that goes in to look at my screen time and evaluate it. In fact, I've never clicked on my iPhone to see my screen time and to see, like, how many hours I spent on my phone last week, how many times I picked it up, how much time I spent on ESPN, how much time I spent on social media. I've never been that guy, but just for kicks this week, I decided to click on it. It was disturbing how much time I spend on my phone. But what was even more interesting than disturbing is that I have 34 apps on my phone that I actually use more than my phone itself. Does that make sense? In fact, as I was looking through the different apps and how much time I spend a day on them, I spend more time on my garage door opener app than I do talking on my phone every day, which I don't really know what that means. I don't know what to do with that. But either way, we're, we're immediately accessible all the time. And we have this, uh, this epidemic of it, but we're not always accessible. Or we're accessible, but we're not always available. And there's a problem with that. The problem is that when we're not available, we miss out on opportunity. And I think God has created us to be available more than he has created us to be accessible. He's wired us for deep connection. And we thought years and years ago when we got these phones, we thought it was going to make our lives more easy. We thought it was going to connect us to other people more conveniently. We thought that, man, I'm going to have more friends and social media is just going to add to my popularity and I'm going to feel better about myself. But the problem is, is that in many ways, these things have made us accessible, but they've not made us available. And it hasn't deep into our relationships nearly as much as we hoped. But God has wired us and designed us for a deep connection with him and with other people. We talked last week about how God is the one, he's the one who first pursued us. You probably heard Pastor Dave talk about that. You know, we did not pursue him first. He came after us. He pursued us, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our brokenness and our rebellion and our treason against him. He pursued us. We were dead people, dead in our trespasses and sins, and we did not just decide one day, I'm going to come to life. Dead people don't do that, right? Like, God pursued after us. In fact, Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus pursued us. We did not chase after him. He pursued us because he wants a deep connection with us. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, 
of the 19th century, he once said in a sermon, he said, those, those who seek Christ are already being sought by him. Boy, that's a comforting truth to know, right? Like, as soon as, as soon as we start pursuing after him, it's only a result of him first pursuing after us. We only can draw near to him because he first drew near to us. And we're wired to know that we have this deep connection with the creator of the universe. But we're also designed with, not just for vertical connection with God, but we're designed for horizontal connection with other people. And there is power in the truth of another in our lives, is there not? We all need another in our lives. In fact, this is so powerful that scripture speaks to it quite often in the New Testament. In fact, there are 59 one another's in the New Testament alone. Love one another forgive one another, serve one another, exhort one another to good works. All of these different things, 59 of them, Scripture says, do these things together. Pursue me in relationship with one another together. One anothering is a beautiful practice, but we have to work at it. We have to invest in it. We have to sacrifice for it. In fact, Ephesians 4, 4.16, you don't have to turn there. I just want to read this. From whom the whole body, this is Paul saying to the church at Ephesus. He said the whole body, that's us, the body of Christ, this faith family, were joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is properly working or working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When we as a church are together, when we are connected, when we're in deep community, scripture tells us that we're building one another up in love. We're growing together. We're healthier together. We were meant for this kind of connection. And meaningful relationship, folks, you probably already know this. This is nothing new. It never comes passively. It always comes actively. You have to pursue it. We all long to belong. I've used that phrase before. Maybe in, you've heard me say that in a sermon before. But we all long to belong to someone, to something. Every one of us need to be connected, whether we're extroverts or even introverts. We all need meaningful connection to another in our lives because it makes our lives more abundant. It makes, it makes the human experience that much more powerful and it encourages us as we chase after Christ together, it makes us better followers of Jesus. The fact of the matter is, I've been in small groups, I've been in core groups, I've been in Bible studies with many, some of you, not many of you necessarily, but I've been in, in these types of groups with some of you over the last three to four years. And I am better because you are in my life. I am better because I'm pursuing Jesus and the gospel with other people in my life. Eugene Peterson, he once wrote this. He said, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life, apart from an immersion in and an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. Have any of you ever noticed that? That when you are isolated, when you are lonely, when you are retreating from the, the power of connection and community, you are not quite yourself, something feels off. And as accessible as we are, our culture is more lonely than we've ever been. Statistics tell us that 52% of us are lonely on a regular basis. 58% of, of us feel like no one knows us deeply or knows us well. It's actually been said that loneliness is such a detriment to your health, your physical health, that it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Think about that. 
That's the damage that loneliness does to us in our lives if we don't have community. But we've, so we've all felt this loneliness at times. We've all gone through seasons where we've been detached from community and connection. This is a part of our fallen world, our fallen creation, but loneliness was not a part of God's original design. He didn't make us to be lonely and isolated but it's our sinful nature that craves this isolation. It's our sinful nature that wants to keep parts and pockets of our lives private. It's our sinful nature that says, I don't want people to know my issues. I don't want people to know my struggles. I'm just going to pull back and put a smile on my face and act like everything is fine. We do this in order to mask our problems and we push people away at a distance in order to protect the veneer that we've got it all together. Some of you walked in this morning with a mask on your face that said, I've got it all together. But you're broken inside. You're lacking inside. Something is missing in your life. You know, in isolation, when we push people away, isolation oftentimes is what we think we want, but what it often brings is anxiety and depression and despair. So the antidote to so many of our mental and our spiritual health issues in our world is actually the very thing that our flesh pushes away. The thing that we, our spirit craves is the thing that our flesh fights against. It's community. It's connection. And connection in gospel community is the very thing that God created us for. So I want to go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, okay? Many of you probably know the story, Genesis chapter 2, the creation account. God spends six days creating this beautiful universe. He speaks it all into existence. Day one, you know, day two, day three, he creates all these different things. At the end of every single 24-hour period, God steps back. He looks at what he has created, and he says what? It's good. This is good. And then he gets to day six. He creates man. He creates humans. He creates them in him in the likeness of himself, in his own image. And he looks at his creation. He looks at Adam, sees that Adam is alone, and he says, this is not good. Let's look at um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 20. It says this. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed um, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So this is where we're at on day six, okay? It didn't take six decades. It didn't take six weeks. It didn't take 600 years. God looks at day six and almost immediately realizes as if he realizes anything, right? Like as if there was something he didn't already know. But for the lack of a better term, he realizes, oh, it's not good that this man that I just created is alone. I need to make a helper fit for him. And so he doesn't see that it's good, and so he keeps creating Look at verses 21 to 23 in Genesis chapter 2. Um, verse 21 says, uh, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed, uh, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this, is at la this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken 
out of the man. So Adam wakes up from this deep sleep, realizes that God has made him a partner. He's made him a friend. He's made him someone that he can connect horizontally with. He's made him someone that is equal to him. Because God knew that Adam would never be complete. He would never be satisfied with uh, uh, you know, friendship only with animals and other parts of creation. He needed another in his life. So he creates for him an equal partner. And Adam's first words are words of celebration. They're words of praise. If you look again at verse 23, it says, then, then, then the man said, he actually sang this. This is a song of appreciation and gratitude. This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. God saw that it was good. Adam saw that this was really good. He now had a partner in life, someone to walk through life with. And I think the danger of this passage of scripture right here is that we look at this and say, oh, this is the the importance of marriage. This is the importance of finding a good wife for a man. And yes, it is about that. A lot of times we read these passages at weddings, but this is also about the deep-seated desire for connection with other humans, not just in marriage. This is a description of the relational connection that each and every one of us, deep down, we long for. And God gifts it to us because he knows that we need it in order to pursue intimacy with him. Connection is essential to us flourishing in life. Now, let's look on to verse 24 and 25. Therefore, this is Adam continuing. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Scripture says they held fast to one another. They clinged to one another. They, it's almost like they didn't let go. They knew that they were going to have to go through this life and they were going to be with each other as they were in the presence of God. I tell people all the time, one of the biggest, most unexpected blessings in marriage that I discovered 25 years ago was that the realization that I'm no longer alone in this life. Like, no matter what problem I go through, I've got somebody that feels my pain. Whatever temptation I struggle with, I've got someone that's there to maybe hold me accountable. No matter what internal battles I'm facing in my mind and I'm struggling with, I've got someone that can listen to me as I process my struggles. Man, that is such a huge blessing to have that deep connection in life. And my wife and I, we have gone through our ups and downs, but we have clinged together. We have held fast to one another for 25 years. This, back in Adam and Eve, back in the garden, this was pure connection and vulnerability without shame. They pursued a relationship with God that was healthy, that was unhindered, that was untethered and undistracted. But that connection with each other, that connection with God was quickly cut off because there's a transition to chapter 3. You'll see that this transition says that Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Here's the serpent, this conniving creation of God who was a fallen demon from heaven. A fallen angel, he is lurking in the shadows, almost as if he's waiting for a moment to spoil God's good creation. Everything that God had worked for over the course of six days and then beyond, it's almost like the enemy is waiting in the shadows to spoil everything that was good. 
And the thing that's interesting is that he doesn't begin with an argument. He doesn't try to out-debate God. He doesn't try to outright lie. He just begins with a whisper. He introduces doubt through a whisper. You know, I listened to a podcast this week. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have your regular podcasts that you go to and listen to, but I've got a few that I listen to on a regular basis. And this one podcast in particular actually played a soundbite from a radio host um, that talked about if he were the devil... This is how he would bring down humanity. This is how he would cause them to crumble from within. Now, some of you guys, when I read this, you might recognize this. This is a, this is a portion of the manuscript. I'd love to play the audio, but it's a little bit too long. Um, so I, I kind of trimmed it down. This is still a little bit lengthy, but I want you to travel with me because this is the reality of how the devil gets into our lives and how he whispers in our ears and causes us to stumble, causes us to take our eyes off of the Lord and get distracted. He said this, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, V. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide, I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And to the old, I would teach them to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families that war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves. Does any of this sound familiar? Until each in its turn was consumed. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. Soon, I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and abusing church money. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet? I couldn't get the whole state to promote gambling as a way to get rich. I would caution against extremes and hard work. I'd caution against patriotism and moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Anybody recognize that passage? This was Paul Harvey on ABC Radio in 1965. This is what he almost prophetically said on the radio. This is a description of exactly where we're at. And it all starts with the whisper of a serpent. It all starts with the whisper of doubt from the enemy. Satan has been whispering doubt into our ears ever since the garden. This is where some of our churches have gotten into some dangerous territory. 
This is where we've started hiding from God's word and manipulating his word. We've gotten into heretical teachings. Hopefully that never happens here at Crossroads, but many churches in our nation and around the world have gotten into heresy, and some of them, I would even venture to say, have gone into full-on apostasy because they're twisting God's word to fit their fancy. They want something that makes them feel good. They want to dance around hard scriptures. They don't want to talk about truth. They don't want to take stands on what God says is true. And they start to ask themselves, did God really say, did he really say that? Well, maybe God didn't mean that we should take that literally, that we should actually do that. Well, when God wrote this, you know, when God said this, and when, when the writers of the New Testament wrote this, they were talking in a context that was 2,000 years ago. That doesn't apply to us today. This is exactly what the enemy does to pervert the word of God. We find ourselves... If we listen to the whispers of the enemy, we find ourselves aligning with culture, but out of step with God and his word. So what the enemy wants to do is he wants to create doubt in your mind. He wants to create doubt in your lives in three different areas. He wants you, he wants you to doubt the word of God. He wants you to doubt the work of God. And he wants you to doubt the worthiness of God. This is how he works. This is exactly what he did in the garden. It's what he's still doing today. And that's all our sin nature ever needs to veer off the path of righteousness. So this whisper of temptation to Eve was, is really not about the fruit at all. It wasn't about that fruit that was hanging from the tree. It was a ploy by Satan to tempt Eve to disobey God, to disbelieve his goodness in her life. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says this, And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So here is Eve, what looks to be like a righteous thing. She looks like she's quoting God and saying this is what God told us. But is that really what he told them? Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 17. This is exactly what God told Adam and Eve. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what do we notice between the, what's the discrepancy between those two passages? Eve says, God told her not to even touch it. That's a small little detail, right? Eve adds it in. It seems like a good next step to, hey, not just don't eat from it, but also don't touch this tree. But what it really tells us is that she's already drifting from the heart of God. She's already twisting it. Satan is already in her ear and manipulating her to believe something that's not true about what God is and what he said. The serpent implies by his question, did God really say that he was holding out on Eve? So they, Adam and Eve, they dared to doubt God. They eat of this forbidden fruit. And this is what happens starting in verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Their eyes were now open to sin and the shame that came along, it, along with it. How many of you in your life have ever like had that bait that was dangled in front of you and you wanted it, you wanted it, you wanted to take it, you wanted to try it, you wanted to see it, 
and you finally tried it for that first time because you could no longer withstand the temptation, and as soon as you tried it, as soon as you tasted of it, it introduced shame into your life. And now, maybe all these years later, you wish you had never seen that magazine. You wish you had never clicked on that website. You wish that you had never taken that drink. You wish that you had never taken that step in a relationship. And now, because sin has been introduced to you, shame has been introduced as well. And what do we do? We hide. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. They, they hid. And we've been hiding ever since. And that's kind of our natural bent, isn't it? To hide from one another, to hide from God. My question to you this morning is, where do you run to hide? Chances are you're not hiding behind things that are inherently sinful. Many of us as Christ followers, we're far too savvy. We're far too evolved to hide behind shameful things. So we hide our rebellion against God in the shadows of respectable things. Things like accomplishment. Things like busyness, things like achievements, things like humor, maybe even things like religion. You know, it's been said that religion is one of the safest places for us to hide from God. I would even go so far as to say maybe one of the safest places to hide from God is in the very seat that you're sitting in this morning. Some of us were hiding in plain daylight because if you're in church, everyone assumes that you're okay because you're here. You're here on Sunday morning, but let's be honest, some of us this morning are not okay. We've got the mask on, but really what we want is someone to know what we're going through. But we keep hiding, we, we hide behind the facade of religiosity to give the appearance that everything's fine, but we're, what we're really doing is pushing people away so they don't know your insecurity, so they don't know your brokenness, so they don't know your sinfulness. We're hiding in plain sight on Sunday morning. So how do we actually, the question is, how do we actually connect in a biblical way, in a way that honors God in deeper relationships? Well, the, the, the solution, the answer is really simple. You know, this is not like earth-shattering stuff. The answer to how we find deep connection and community is we have to stop hiding. The on-ramp of connection is vulnerability. You know, several weeks ago, you might remember I preached on, um, this was probably a month and a half ago, I preached on the life of Gideon out of Judges. Some of you might remember that. I preached on about, the fact, about the fact that Gideon was a coward. You know, you're introduced to him where he is in a well, he's in a big old hole, um, and he's, uh, you know, working with wheat, and he's separating the wheat and the chaff, and he's, he's a coward. But God speaks into his life and turns him into a courageous man. And in the midst of that sermon, some of you might remember, I shared some of my own vulnerabilities with you. I was very honest with you, like, man, these are some of the things that I fear. These are some of the things that I struggle with. And if I'm being completely honest, I would love to have shared more with you. But if you knew the deep, dark places in my mind and the things that I struggle with, you probably would think I'm a little bit of a weirdo. But I didn't share those things because I don't want to make people uncomfortable. But I shared enough to let you know I'm real, and I have struggles just like you. And in 24 years of gospel ministry preaching just like this, I have never had as much feedback on a sermon as I had from that one. And I think the reason that it struck a chord with people is they look at a guy up on a stage and they say, that guy seems like he might have it all together, but he's real and he's honest. And he's sharing his struggles in front of 250, 280 people. 
And I think most of us want that. that we, we want that place where we can be transparent, where we can be honest and we can be vulnerable. But our flesh, our natural desire is to push things away in our sinfulness. You know, even though it's scary, vulnerability is always worth the risk. C.S. Lewis, he once talked about this in his book, The Four Loves. I think we're going to have this quote up on the screen, but it says this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure uh, of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. Folks, if we're going to live in the kind of connection that God created us for, we have to be willing to be open and transparent and vulnerable. We're going to have to do that at the risk of, of, of people maybe not understanding us, at the risk of being hurt, at the risk of being, uh, man, yeah, misunderstood. And so the question is, is, where do you find this community? Where do you find this? Because Sunday morning is not always it. When you come in on Sunday mornings, we're all sitting in rows. It's not difficult to look at the back of someone's head in front of you, unless they're bald and they have a glare coming off of it. This is easy. Where do we find this kind of place where we can find this connection? We got to go to a place where rows turn into circles. And where do we find circles? We find circles in groups. Folks, you need to be in a group. You need a small, this is great. Like this is where we come together as an as a entire corporate body of Jesus and we're encouraged for the week ahead. But groups is where transparency happens. Groups is where we pursue God together on an intimate level. It's where you, you give yourself to others. It's where you build trust. It's where you're held accountable. It's where you take risks and you share things that are messy in your life. And let me tell you guys, when you find a group of people that will let you share the junk in your life, and they will love you in spite of it, you have found something that is unique and life-giving. And every one of us are looking for that. The problem is, is that some people, many people, are looking for this kind of community in all of the wrong places. The community they're looking for is based on faulty foundations. We need a foundation of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For many people, their community sends them on a downward spiral of destruction instead of an upward spiral of discipleship. We find this in the church. We find this in groups. Think all the way back to the book of Genesis where we've been reading after Adam and Eve's rebellion. After their fall, after their shame, God comes into the garden and what does he do? He clothes them. He covers them. Even in their disobedience, God gives them what they need. And God does the same thing for us today. When we sin, he still pursues us. And he gives us community at the same time. He clothes us in Christ Jesus, as Galatians 3.27 says. Folks, when you walk in the confidence of knowing that God knows you, he knows your heart, he knows your motivations, he knows your thoughts and your deeds and every intention of your thoughts, and your heart, and he still pursues you, that frees you up to know that I can pursue others in community because what God thinks about me is way more important than what other people think about me. We can be freed up to, to pursue 
connection that is deep. And keeping up with appearances, it's exhausting, isn't it? Like trying to, trying to protect your reputation and what people think about you, even in a church on Sunday mornings, is exhausting. But my question to, to each and every one of us, what are we more concerned with? Upholding our reputation or relationships that are meaningful and deep and life-giving and Christ-honoring? How many of you this morning, you're tired of playing the game? You're sick of sitting in your shame. You're sick of acting like you have it all together and trying to, um, man, trying to fool people. You're sick of sitting and hiding in plain sight in the, in the seat that you're in. And just like Adam and Eve, I would tell you folks that you can't hide in the trees from the one who created them. You can't hide from God, so stop running from him. He sees you. He knows your faults. He knows your problems. He knows your struggles, and he pursues you in spite of that. God sees you as you are right now. So that frees us up to stop barricading ourselves behind successful careers. Because some of you, honestly, are enviable. You come in, and we know that you're successful. You've got a good thing going on, and you hide behind that. And really, deep down, you're a mess. Your life is a mess. Your thoughts are a mess. Your habits are a mess. Your addictions are a mess. All of these things. We've got to stop barricading ourselves behind successful careers and perfect social media posts and reputations and Sunday smiles. We've got to stop doing that, try to keep everybody fooled. And I would tell you this morning, if you're broken, you can't hide and heal at the same time. You've got to step out into the light. You've got to step out of the darkness and make yourself available to be healed. You know, when a people called the church, a people of God, when we come together, there's something strangely beautiful about it. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that it can stretch across ethnicities and ideologies and skin colors and genders and voting habits and histories and party lines. It crosses all of these things and, and then some. The things that divide us in our humanness, it has the power to connect us, to give us something to unite under. This is a diverse group of people. Like you can look around you and you see some people that are very different from you. But there's something about this place and this people and this Jesus that we serve that brings us together and says, even though so-and-so is very different from me and I don't see things the way that they do and they vote differently than I do, I still have something in common with them. It's Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed. This is the relationship that we need on Sunday mornings. It's the relationship that we need throughout the week. And when the world sees this relationship, when it sees our diversity but it sees our unity at the same time. It looks at this beautiful, mysterious melting pot called the church. The, the world will say, how is it possible that all these people agree in spite of their differences? Maybe the world would see that and say, I want those relationships. I want that unity. I want that connection. I want to be known. I want to be pursued. I want to be authentic. Francis Schaeffer once said, the theologian, he said, Christian community is the final apologetic. The world will look to us. We'll know us by our love. We'll know us by our works. We'll know us by our community. We were built for this kind of community. So friends, stop hiding. Stop hiding. Step out of the dark. Take a step toward vulnerability. And this is my one plug throughout this whole sermon. Get into a group. 
If you're here and you've considered, like, how do I find this kind of friendship and relationship, this is a perfect time for you to hear this sermon because we've got groups that you can register for right now called Keys to Freedom. We want you to get into one of those groups. So if you're thinking about taking that step, go to the info center at the end of the service, grab one of those cards, scan the QR code, find a group of people, take a risk, be vulnerable, and become a deeper part of the church. Friends, let's go ahead and stand I want to transition. Hopefully this morning when you came in, 